Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. Today's episode takes us to China. When I've covered Chinese cases in the past, I've often used Google Translate to help me read the Chinese accounts of what happened. In doing this, some subtleties are lost in translation. In addition to the translation problem, there is also the issue of censorship. I've done my best to bring you the information as factually and thoroughly as I can. Please forgive me if I pronounce the names wrong. I have never taken Chinese and I have done my best. In 2012, Shangwei City implemented a one-size-fits-all cremation policy. No one was allowed to be buried. At the time, China was attempting to change public perceptions about traditional burials. They hoped to encourage cremations in order to tackle China's land resource problem. Traditionally, Chinese people believe that burial is the proper way to handle a dead body. They invest heavily in funerals and coffins, and they believe that burials are a way to show respect to their ancestors. Many people were critical of this funeral reform policy. Thousands took to the internet, criticizing the drive for not being compassionate towards people's feelings. Many said that taking away someone's coffin was taking away an emotional crutch at the end of life. Others believed that if their bodies were burned, they wouldn't make it to the afterlife. The government has stepped up its promotion of sea burials and tree burials, the latter being where the body is cremated and a tree is planted amidst the ashes. In densely populated areas, China has promoted vertical burials and smaller tombs. They've encouraged family members to share the same tomb. But in Shanwei, these options weren't what a dying man named Huang wanted. Everyone in the village of Shanwei knew when the disabled son of the Lin family had disappeared. Tianche, not his real name, had Down syndrome. For those of you who might not know, Down syndrome is a genetic disorder that occurs when abnormal cell division results in extra genetic material from the chromosome 21. When this happens, there's a wide range of developmental disability delays and physical disabilities, but for the most part, these wonderful human beings are more like you and I than they are different. When Tianche disappeared, the villagers didn't know for two and a half years whether he was dead or alive. On the day of his disappearance, the Lin family called the police. His family and the police organized a search which continued for several months, but their son was never found. When asked to describe Tianche, his brothers described him as slow but with a gentle temperament. They said although his head wasn't bright, he liked to be with people. He would often hang out in front of a local supermarket at the entrance of the village. He would meet his friends and other people with disabilities there, and when things were most lively, he'd be seen sitting and talking with three or four other individuals, some with Down syndrome or other varied intellectual disabilities. When he disappeared, the Lin family imagined all kinds of worst-case scenarios. His youngest brother worried whether Tianche would walk around at night and accidentally fall into one of the ponds. There were also rumors around the country that some elderly and homeless people had been kidnapped and sold for their organs. Tianche was born in 1981, and he was the second of six brothers. At the age of six months, his mother noticed that her little boy was different. His face looked slightly flattened, and his eyes gently slanted inwards. 
His ears were a little bit lower than normal. When he was old enough to speak, he couldn't, and when he finally did speak, many of the adults around him couldn't understand him. His mother didn't care. She believed that he might be mentally deficient, but she would deal with it, and as long as he eats when he's hungry, she'd be happy. Her son grew, without many issues, to be in his thirties. He had a round, fleshy face, a small head, a strong body, and was rarely sick. She worked hard with him as a young man, and although his speech was harder to understand, he could easily express his daily needs. He could feed himself, bathe himself, and take care of his own life. He knew his name and address, and his mom was happy with this. Now, she's approaching 70 years old. The whites of her eyes are cloudy, as if they have a layer of fog over them. When it comes to her son, who was raised with difficulty, her tears can't be stopped. She said, when I think of him, my heart feels like it's being twisted by a knife. The day he disappeared, he woke up at close to noon. He ate his lunch, then told his mom he was going to go pick up plastic bottles and exchange them for cigarettes and food. He has lived his life in the same area and is familiar with most of the roads nearest his home. He would go out every day picking up plastic to recycle, watching people, and returning home at night on time for dinner. He'd never had any kind of accident along the way. That morning, Tianche put on his favorite desert camouflage military hat, and after going outside, he made his first stop at his youngest brother's house. That year, his brother, named Lin, had just married and had children. Tianche loved his little baby nephew and would go over to take a look and tease the little baby who laughed happily in his uncle's arms. After sitting and playing with his nephew for a while, Tianche picked up the snakeskin woven bag he carried and said he was going to pick up plastic bottles. That was the last memory his younger brother would have of Tianche. At six o'clock that evening, his mom felt a little flustered. Her son hadn't returned home yet. He was very rarely late for dinner. She called her youngest son and explained that his brother hadn't come home since he went out at one o'clock. Her son tried to comfort her and said he'd be over later. It seems that mothers are often the first to detect the beginning of something ominous. Dinner came and went. She sat up late waiting for him. That night, she couldn't sleep. She lay on her bed, tossing and turning. When midnight came and she still hadn't heard her son's voice, one she'd grown to love and one that sounds like he's speaking with a mouth full of sugar, she got up and started calling her sons. They gathered overnight, and as soon as dawn broke, the family went out to look for Tianche. But finding him in a city containing 450,000 people would be like finding a needle in a haystack. The Lin family spent most of the first year looking for their brother and son. They searched the streets over and over, expanding outwards. Many of Tianche's brothers stopped working and focused only on finding him. His father, who was in his late 60s, spent his days searching. His body was broken and worn out. He needed painkillers every day in order for him to get up and walk the streets. He avoided the hospital and self-care in order to continue the search for the son he loved. His mind was consumed with finding Tianche. At the end of June 2017, 
Someone called to say he had seen a mentally disabled man who looked like Tian Shi. His father immediately bought a ticket to Guangzhou on the same day. Unfortunately, he was disappointed when he arrived and found another man who was not his beloved son. It was on that day that Tian Shi's father gave in to the pain. Maybe it was a mix of heartbreak and physical pain that finally pushed him into admitting himself into the hospital in Guangzhou for an examination. He was told that he was in the advanced stages of gallbladder cancer. Ten days later, he would die. After their father's death, Tian Shi's brothers had to reevaluate their lives. They were having trouble at home. They wanted to keep searching, but life must go on. Bills must be paid. They had taken as much time off as they could. They'd borrowed money from relatives, but it didn't last long. They had to go back to work. The search for Tian Shi gradually stopped. While they'd been searching, they had mentally prepared themselves with the fact that their brother might not return. When their father was cremated, they burned some of Tian Shi's belongings alongside their father and mentally buried them together. The Lin family chose to believe that their brother had an accident rather than accepting the idea that he may have been harmed intentionally. They told each other stories, remembering their brother fondly. One day when they were children, their father gave pocket money to every child except Tian Shi. That year, their youngest son was only nine years old, and he called his father out for the first time. He asked his father why Tian Shi didn't get some money too. His father's response wasn't anger. He was so proud of his youngest son that day that he went to the store and brought a big fish home to add to the family dinner. For them, it was a huge treat. Tian Shi's parents had hoped to find a wife for him, one that could help take care of him in the future, but they never found a suitable candidate, and they were worried that his genetic disability would be passed on to the next generation, so they gave up. They weren't rich, and although several sons worked and rented their own homes, they didn't have much money to spare for the care of their brother. In 2015, several of his brothers and their father contributed about 200,000 yuan, or 30,000 U.S. dollars, to build a fairly spacious home. The brothers drew straws and agreed that whoever won would be whose name was written as owning the house, and whoever's name was chosen would be responsible for supporting his parents and their brother. This was looked on as an honor. Tianche was beloved, and when his parents died, he would still have been taken care of. In his mother's opinion, Tianche was no different from any other children. He'd watch TV late into the night, and she'd scold him, telling him that if he didn't go to bed, she was still going to wake him up at the same time in the morning to help with dishes and sweeping the floor. His response was always, I know, I know. Somewhere along the way, Tianche learned to smoke. His mother didn't approve, so she wouldn't give him money. He had to earn it himself. He also learned that to give a cigarette to someone else, he had to hold it in both hands and to pass it over respectfully. He loved spending time with people. When someone he knew came to his house, he would rush to make tea and respectfully shout, Come, come drink tea with me. When he was little, he'd follow his brothers to the village to pick up garbage and plastic bottles. 
He'd bring the bottles home and pile them up on the wall in front of his house to help subsidize his family. At one point, he had saved five or six bags of plastic. He was excited about the money they'd bring in. That was a lot of plastic for a day's work. But that night, they were stolen. He cried and was dismayed when he found out. No one told him what to do. But from that moment forward, when he picked up plastic for recycling, he would carry it upstairs into the attic and never left it at the front door again. He's smart, his mother said. He would take pictures with his father's old mobile phone, pictures of flowers and grass and fish ponds. He loved going to watch outdoor movies that local villages would organize. Sometimes he'd take his dad's phone, film the movie, and then bring it home to show his family. The people who took the time to get to know him loved him. They'd see him picking up bottles and then sitting in front of the local supermarket watching people play cards and dance. Sometimes he'd help the local supermarket owner deliver things and carry rice. Children in the village called him a friend. He would buy them little plastic toys and play games alongside them. He kept track of time, and when it was dinner time, he'd say goodbye to the supermarket owner, shake his hands, and slowly walk home to his dinner and his mother. The day her son disappeared, Tianche's mom began turning on the lights in the upstairs room where he slept. She left it on for him. She said she always thought he would be coming back sooner or later. She wanted to be sure that when he came back, he'd see the light, it wouldn't be dark, and he wouldn't be afraid. When he was gone, her health became worse and worse. She underwent several surgeries and has a long scar on her abdomen. She began to forget things. She had a picture of her son that she kept by her side. She'd look at it and cry. Eventually, the picture would get lost. Tianche disappeared in March of 2017, and it wasn't until two and a half years in November of 2019 that the Lin family received a call from the town police. They would find out that their son had been murdered, and they would learn that the killer's name was Chin Fengbin. Chin Fengbin was a middle-aged man who drove a large white van. He was also disabled. His family had a nickname for him, which translated to stepping on the ground. In the local dialect, the name refers to a person who is idle and doesn't do his job. I think we can compare it to the American word loafer. He dropped out of school when he was a child, and when he was a teenager, he loved to wander around the village. He would do what he could to earn money on the street. Most of his neighbors thought he was a very nice, polite, and well-behaved boy. As he became a man, he married and lived a stable life for quite a while. He contracted the use of more than 10 acres of land in the village, which he planted with greens and soybeans alongside his wife. When they made a harvest, they would sell their items to a local market, but because the area often had heavy rainfalls, sometimes there would be no harvest. Along the way, they had two children and more mouths to feed. Those years were tough, but they got by. Unfortunately, in 2013, life became even more challenging. On the way to sell vegetables, Fengbin had a car accident and his lower leg was crushed. After having had to lay in bed for more than a year to recover, doctors realized his leg had suffered permanent damage and couldn't be used. 
He could no longer do the heavy physical work required in farming. The fields he had farmed were taken back. No one knew exactly what he did with his time after he lost the farmland and his income, but his life at home began to change. Without a fixed career, he spent less and less time at home. At first, his wife called to ask him where he went, but after she was met time and time again with him screaming at her, yelling at her that he was having affairs and she couldn't do anything about it, she stopped. His wife was embarrassed and hurt. She decided she'd no longer take care of him if he didn't care for her. She didn't want him to come home, and when he did, they would fight over little things. He would hit her and sometimes even kick her. She worked as much as she could to earn money, finding work as a restaurant handyman and had relatives helping her from time to time. She could barely afford to keep her two children and pay for her own living expenses. Her back was bent by hard work. She was exhausted. The last thing she wanted was to have to take care of a husband who didn't care for her. She certainly didn't try to keep track of him. Since he was rarely home, it was a surprise for her when police came knocking on the door looking for him. What a tangled web we weave when we practice to deceive. This tangled web had snared Tian Shen, but the deception began with a man named Lao Huang. He was dying from advanced lung cancer. On his deathbed, he expressed his last wish to his younger brother. His wish was to be buried instead of cremated. Huang's brother had heard there were ways to get around cremation, and he began asking around, wondering if there was any way he could bury his brother instead. He found out that, yes, indeed, a black market for bodies had formed because of the new cremation laws. A friend would give him the phone number of a man who owned a funeral home. Remember that friend. I'll come back to him later. This funeral home owner would agree to find a corpse, one that would be placed in Huang's coffin and cremated. The government would never found out, and Huang's real body could be buried somewhere else. The price would be 107,000 yuan, or about 15,000 U.S. dollars. The funeral home worker became a broker in the chain. He reached out to Chin Feng Bin, explaining that he needed a corpse. The physically disabled Chin Feng Bin's work after the car accident occasionally included carrying coffins for funeral homes. Sometimes he'd drive dead bodies from place to place, and sometimes he'd transport coffins from the places they were built or stored to the funeral home. When work at the funeral home got busy, the owner would ask Feng Bin to help in transporting things. They'd pay him the equivalent of about $30 U.S. for a delivery. But that wasn't all they asked him to do. This time, they needed a body. He would be paid the equivalent of $13,000 U.S. dollars if he could find one that met the buyer's parameters. It wasn't easy to find corpses that are suitable for a coffin. To avoid being discovered by the government, some of the body buyers would require that the two corpses be of the same gender and that the times of death not be far apart. Sometimes decayed corpses would be dug up and placed in coffins, and other times animal parts would be placed inside. People who were willing to spend even more money could pay for frozen corpses that were held in cold storage. Once there was an order for a body, 
the seller would pull out a corpse that met the requirements and place it in the coffin. Many of these corpses belonged to homeless people, beggars, or elderly people who lived alone. The most vulnerable in life are seemingly the most vulnerable in death as well. The disabled, the homeless, and the loneliest were the easiest to find, store, and sell. Most often, there was no one there to claim them. This way of finding a body was relatively safe, and if caught, the perpetrators would only be punished with the crime of stealing and desecration of a corpse. If a corpse is given over voluntarily, in other words, bought from relatives, the sentence for body swapping can be very light. None of these options are ethical, but Chin Feng Bin had no ethics and did much worse to obtain a body. He chose to kidnap and kill a mentally handicapped man he just met by chance. After leaving his younger brother's house, Tian She walked another two or three hundred meters. He turned onto the busy main road of the village, which was heavily traveled. There were two large public garbage bins on the side of the road, which Tian She stopped to rummage through. He was bending down, picking out the plastic bottles, when a white van pulled up beside him. A heavy, middle-aged man hopped out of the van and spoke with Tian She for a few minutes. When the man realized that Tian She was disabled, he grabbed his bag and threw it into the van. When Tian She turned to get it, Feng Bin half-pulled and half-pushed Tian She into the car and drove away from town. As he drove, the man talked calmly to Tian She, gaining his trust, and over time he gave him six bottles of a very strong rice wine. Tian She trustingly drank them down. He became extremely intoxicated, vomited, and shortly after passed out. At this point, Feng Bin drank a cup himself, as if to strengthen his reserve. He tried to wake Tian She up, but couldn't do it. When he didn't respond to pokes, prods, and shouts, Feng Bin told himself that Tian She must have drank himself to death. He carried Tian She's body to the back of his van and placed it into a coffin he had prepared in advance and nailed it closed, sealing it tightly. He took it back to his home and hid the coffin under some brush and leaves, then called his boss at the funeral parlor to tell him that he found a body. Feng Bin sealed Tian She, a living human being, into a coffin, and then waited for him to die. He would likely have run out of air in only five hours. I'd like to believe he slept through his death, but we'll never know the truth. Maybe Feng Bin strangled him, or worse. We really only have his word as to what really happened after he kidnapped Tian She. Two days later was Huang's funeral. Before attending the funeral, Huang's family met with the funeral director and exchanged the coffins. Tian She was then transported to the funeral parlor for a cremation. Huang, in his coffin, was buried in a pre-selected grave near a local reservoir. The grave sits on the edge of a mountain, looking down at the water. It's unclear exactly how police found out about the body swap. I searched and searched, but could not find out for sure. What we do know is that surveillance footage was the key to the case. Why it took over two years to find Tian She's killer is a mystery. 
Somehow, the tangled web unraveled, leading to Feng Bin's arrest. Two and a half years after he kidnapped Tian Shi, the police would arrest him. He'd be charged with intentional homicide and would be sentenced to death with a two-year reprieve. His wife would never go visit him. She said, He and I don't have a good relationship, and I no longer think or care about him. Huang lies peacefully in his rich man's grave on the mountain. His brother, the man who bought Tian Che's body, received no punishment even though he broke the cremation laws. He was one of many who did and still do. Some people happily accept the cremation policy. Many choose to bury their loved ones privately and sneakily. Some who are rich directly ignore the cremation policy, paying off or fighting off authorities. Others complain, stating that it's not fair that the rich and powerful can pay exorbitant bribes to be buried where they like, while everyone else is cremated. The cultural roots of the crime and the possible involvement of local officials made the story an instant hit on social media platforms. Do you remember that friend, the one who referred Huang's brother to the funeral director? Well, it turns out he was a former deputy director in a government office. His role was local registrar, meaning he recorded all the local funerals. His involvement in the case pointed to a large local black market in corpses used to circumvent cremation regulations. All of this taking place in a region where ancestral rights are still taken seriously, one that involved high-ranking government officials. China doesn't like its government being questioned or tarnished in any way. The original story was quickly removed from its source, although it remains published in a number of other locations. The day after the story was published, Li Zhaofang, the chief author, reported that the parents of co-author Chin Kaiyun were being harassed by local police and other officials. The author would be threatened with arrest if he didn't turn himself in to face the investigation. Other investigative journalists would post about the censorship storm that surrounded the story. This case caught my attention in part because of the scandal and censorship issues, but also because it involved the senseless murder of someone with special needs. I have a son with Down syndrome. If someone snatched him up, then decided to throw his life away like a piece of trash, I would dedicate my life to making sure justice is done, just like Tian Shei's family was trying to do. I hope that I have conveyed the story in a way that is respectful to the people of China, and most importantly, to Tian Shei's family. That is part of the reason I didn't share his real name. I also hope that I was able to emphasize how wonderful people with Down syndrome and other intellectual disabilities can be. Thank you so much for listening. There are links in the show description if you'd like to support the podcast. I do have a Patreon page set up now as well. Twisted Travel and True Crime is on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Check those out if you'd like to see photos that go along with this episode. A huge thank you to those of you who are supporting the podcast on social media and sending me case requests. I absolutely love them, and I am going through them bit by bit. Thanks again, and to all of you, I'd like to wish you fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds.